All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you happen not to know it by chance, maybe you're a guest with us or uh, haven't seen me up here before. I'm, I'm Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with the church. And uh, as I've been uh, having the, the opportunity to preach lately, I've been taking us through the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to keep on there again today. So if you open up your Bibles, you can go to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 8. Chapter 8 today. Um, we're going to pick up at verse 10 and then work our way uh, a pretty good chunk here. We'll touch on some, some of the things all the way into chapter 9, verse 12. Uh, by the way, if you happen not to have a Bible, I believe you can raise your hand and we've got an usher who can get one to you. So, thanks. So we'll read from there in a, in a second, but before we do that, uh, please pray with me. Lord, thank you for the, uh, the chance to be together here. And I just would uh, make a simple request that you would help us now um, as we're reading your word, we're hearing your word, we're thinking about your word. Uh, we want to be helped by you. Uh, we want uh, this word to have the, the impact of your choosing. And so we just open ourselves to you in that regard now this morning. Uh, please make your word to uh, take deep root. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter 8, starting at verse 10, uh, and we'll go all the way um, a good bit into the next chapter. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw, saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. 
and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Amen. Okay. A lot there. Uh, a, a lot there. A big section of Ecclesiastes. A ton there. Um, and if you've, if you've been around um, to hear um, some of the previous sermons that, that, that I've preached through here in this series, you can maybe hear that the writer is beginning to repeat himself a bit. Um, starting to, to press here on themes that he's already uh, touched on before. And as he does that, really, I think this part of the book sort of becomes like a, a microcosm of the, the whole book, we could say. The very first sermon that I preached uh, with in this series, I, I entitled that message, Be Real, Fear God, and Enjoy Life. Be Real, Fear God, and Enjoy Life. And I meant that as sort of this... Um, kind of big picture sense of the overarching thrust of the book. Be real about this world that we're living in. Just see it for what it is. Right? Pull your head out of the sand, see the world for what it is, brokenness and all. Be real about the fact that this world is in many ways broken. And in light of that, fear God. And in fearing God, then man, grab a hold of life and enjoy it as much as you possibly can. So, uh, really, again, I think this part of the book is basically a microcosm of that bigger uh, macro thrust. We see those same themes pressed here in this section. And so we're going to go ahead and touch on those things again this morning. Um, be real about the brokenness that's in our world. Fear God and enjoy life as much as you can. Okay? So first of all, then, just brokenness. The, the, the issue of brokenness. Man, it is real. It's all around us. And the writer, the writer points out all sorts of brokenness here. He's got a bunch of examples for us. Uh, brokenness, by the way. This, just, this, uh, this is part of the meaning of the vanity. This issue of vanity that he raises time and again throughout the book. Um, it, it, this has to do with brokenness. Um, it's things of life that are just often confusing, uh, often frustrating, and just so often uh, don't seem to work out the way we intuitively just know that they should. Things are just not working the way they should be, and we know they should, but they don't. Um, and he's just real about that. Uh, not, th this writer, as you know, is not one to sugarcoat anything. This is just what it is. This is real life, and in many many ways, it's just simply broken. And again, we, we see uh, a bunch of examples here throughout these two chapters. I'll just mention some in passing here. Uh, wicked people celebrated. Criminals not sentenced. Bad things happening to good people. Good things happening to bad people. Things not happening as we would expect them to happen. 
death, the, the ultimate brokenness. Everyone dies, no matter who you are, good, bad, religious, non-religious, fast, wise, strong, not, doesn't matter, everybody dies. You can't stop it, no matter who you are. And the, the, the threat of death, literally, at, at any unexpected moment. I mean, tragic accidents happen all the time. All the time. And that, that, that threat just constantly over our heads. And all of that, the writer, that's vanity, is what he's saying. This is, it, 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 it's, it's, it feels useless sometimes. It feels futile. Um, it, 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 we, we just feel intuitively that things are not supposed to be this way. It's broken. Um, those things said, still more examples here uh, in the chapter. And I'm thinking here of, of uh, or between the two chapters, I'm thinking of uh, chapter 8, verse 15, and then in chapter 9, verses 7 to 10. Uh, those passages, we won't, we won't read them immediately here, but those passages, um, uh, very much like what we've already seen, again, he's beginning to repeat himself, we've seen uh, passages like this already in earlier chapters. These are, in these uh, verses, the writer is commending the enjoyment of life. Enjoy your various lots in life with our food, with our drink, with our jobs, with our marriages. Enjoy it. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your drink. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your marriage. But with that, then, I think, is implied that very often we don't actually enjoy these things. So here, too, is brokenness. That's broken. We're supposed to enjoy these things. But so often, for various reasons, we don't. But that's God's design. It is God's design that we would enjoy his provisions of food and drink and work and a spouse. Absolutely. I mean, we praise him. This is one of the ways we praise God. It's one of the ways that we thank God. It's one of the ways we honor God is by enjoying the gifts that he gives us. We, we honor the giver by enjoying the gift. And that's, uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. But um, with the first humans, or, or I should say, we saw that right away with the first humans. You see that the, the, uh, God put the first humans in a garden, gave them just a huge variety of, of, of uh, plants and fruit that they could feast on to enjoy. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 104 says that God gave wine to gladden the human heart. And so, man, our food and our drink is meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to gladden our hearts, our marriages, our work. These things, too, from the very first human, God intended that these would be enjoyed as the gifts that they are. But again, too often, uh, we just don't enjoy them for whatever reason. All sorts of reasons uh, might factor in, but we don't enjoy our food that much. We don't enjoy our drink. We don't enjoy our jobs. We don't enjoy our spouses the way we ought. And it's not supposed to be that way. That's broken. It's not supposed to be that way. But be real, that's real life. That is the world that we live in. And it can, and it can seem useless, it can seem frustrating, it can seem confusing, uh, it can be mighty, mighty perplexing. Why, why, why? Why all this brokenness? And we can't know every detail of uh, an answer to, to that, I don't, I don't think, but we can know some of an answer. And uh, as to why all this brokenness, I think no doubt, 
I think no doubt in our sin, we ourselves are a major, major part of the issue. Um, Chapter 9, verse 3, again, sort of hints at this, I think. Chapter 9, verse 3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And yet, even over our human sin, the Bible says that God is ultimately in control. So how does that fit in? And the the writer hints at that here. God is in control. Uh, In in, uh, chapter 8, verse 15, he says essentially that it's God who gives us our our days. God, our day today has been given to us by God. He says that again in chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 17, he mentions the, the work of God. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, he says, The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. God is in control. That's, the writer knows this. God is in control. Um, but for him, and I think probably for many of us, if we're, if we're, if we're, if we're real about that, if we're frank, um, knowing that God is in control in light of all the brokenness, that can actually add to the, bro- to the sense of vanity. It can add to the confusion. It can add to the frustration. Knowing that God is actually somehow not absent, absent in all of this. I mean, if God is in control, then why all the brokenness? Um, why doesn't he just act to fix it? That's confusing. It's frustrating. It's vanity. It's a fair question, though, right? That's a fair question. Why all this stuff happening if God is in control? And like in previous chapters, we don't get an answer right here. We don't get an answer. And uh, let's just be real about that. Let's... let's Let's uh, accept that in a sense. We don't get all of the kind of answer that, that we want, at least not to satisfy sort of every corner of mystery. That's life. The, the, the writer is just real blunt about that. We can't know the answer. Uh, so chapter 8, verse 17, he says, I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He cannot find it out. Talk about an exercise, the proverbial exercise in futility, banging your head against a wall. You're not going to figure it out. We cannot find it out. We cannot figure it out. We simply cannot know every detail of why God governs the universe the way he does. But frustrating and perplexing as that can be, really, actually, there's some pretty good news that sort of breaks through that. Uh, Very good news, I would say. And that is that in God's sovereignty, in the fact that he is in control, he's also very wise. He's also just. So back in... Uh, Chapter 3, the writer said there that God has made everything beautiful in its time. God's made everything beautiful in its time. God is wise. Also in in chapter 3, verse 17, he says that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time and a matter for every work. So God is just. He will execute judgment. And so God is in control. And he's wise in his timing. 
And he's just. And in, and in light of that, then, again, back in chapter 3, uh, the writer says, essentially, that, that God is in control so that, this is chapter 3, verse 14, he says, God is in control, essentially, so that people fear before him. So that people fear before him. In other words, because he's in control, and he's wise, and he's just. In light of who he is, the, li- the, the right response to that is that we would fear him. That we would fear him. We would, in other words, revere him. We would respect him. We would submit to him and in, in, in sort of order our lives up underneath his plans, his purposes, his, his ways. We would aim to please him. We would, we would live for him and not for ourselves. This is fearing the Lord. And, and, and we would do that with this sure hope that he will, in fact, one day execute judgment. And, and executing judgment, he will right all of the wrongs, and he will therefore mend everything that is broken. This is, it, it's, it's living with this hope and this disposition. This is part of what it is to fear the Lord. And that comes in response to knowing that he is in control, and he's wise and he's just. Chapter 3 said that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Well, then here in chapter 8, uh, verses 12 to 13, it says this. It says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know, this is verse 12, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. For those who fear God, it will be well. It will be well. For those who don't, it won't. It will not be well. Um, The writer probably didn't have like uh, sort of an exact sense of how that's going to happen and when that's going to happen. But he's expressing some faith here. He's, he's trusting God's promises. He's, he's proclaiming that somehow, some way, someday, God will execute judgment. He will mete out justice. And when he does, it will be well with those who fear God. That's the good news here. That is reason to celebrate. I mean, despite the broken vanity, despite the futility, the brokenness all around, That's reason for joy. Really, that's the gospel here, we might say. This is the gospel here. It's that in some day, uh, some way, somehow, God is finally going to deal with every form of broken vanity, including death itself, the ultimate brokenness. He's going to deal with it, and he's going to set the world right, and, and justice and life are going to reign. And again, the writer probably doesn't know exactly when, how. Uh, he doesn't actually have all the information, even that we have, in light of Jesus himself and, and what we know of the New Testament. So actually, Jesus says this, um, related to these things. Um, Jesus says in John five twenty eight, he says, do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, that is, Jesus' voice, and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, meaning condemnation. So it will be well with those who fear God. It will not be well with those who don't, 
Or Jesus again in Matthew, in Matthew 13, uh, verses 49 to 50, Jesus says there, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be well with those who fear God. It will not be well with those who don't. Um, I don't know what weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know what fiery furnace. I think this is metaphorical language for whatever it is, it's not good. Whatever it is, it is not well. Or Paul in, uh, in Acts 17, he says this. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And and Paul has in mind here Jesus. And of this he's given assurance to everyone or to all by raising him from the dead. And so resurrection is proof. Jesus' resurrection is proof that God has in fact fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus' resurrection is proof that what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about is going to happen. We know it's going to happen because of Jesus' resurrection. Now, some people um, will talk about the so-called problem of evil. Whenever you, you, you bring up the idea of, of the brokenness in the world and, hey, God is in control, excuse me, well, there's this problem of evil. Um, touched on it a little bit just a couple minutes ago, but the idea is that if God is good, um, if God is all-powerful, um, uh, then, then why all the brokenness in the world? Um, if it is true that God is good and just and in control, then I shouldn't be seeing all the brokenness. So the logic goes that, that, that God is either not good or he's not in control. Because if he was good and in control, then there would be no brokenness. Um, It's a legitimate question, but I think there's another way to think about it. Um, And I heard this somewhere. um, I don't remember precisely where, but um, or who exactly said this, but I, I, I think this is helpful. Another way to look at that question, if God is good and just and in control, then then the world that we see today with all the brokenness that's around us. And you can just think to yourself, your own situation, what is that brokenness for you? Where are you cracked? What's not working right in your life? What has been thrust upon you that's all broken and has hurt you? Those things. If God is just and in control, then then all of those things, well, if he's just, if he's in control, then this cannot be the final state of affairs. This cannot be the final state of affairs. If God is is good and he's all-powerful, then this can't be the final state of affairs. And that's the biblical view, actually. So, in other words, the Bible makes no such claim that since God is good and powerful, therefore there will be no brokenness in the world. The Bible makes no such claim to that. It does claim, however... That, that, that since God is good and since God is powerful, therefore, this cannot be the final state of affairs. This will not be the final state of, the, of, of affairs. That's the Bible's claim. That's what we believe as followers of Jesus. 
The Bible's claim, claim is that God has fixed a day and the time is coming when he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus. By Jesus, who, who proved that by rising up from the dead. The Bible's claim is that we will all face the judgment of God and it will be well with those who fear God. To fear God, again, just, just, just meaning to, to order our lives up under his agenda, up under his way, up under his plan for how he's going to make everything work out. Ordering our lives up under that. And God's plan, in this case, is that it's by trusting Jesus that we get saved from God's judgment and we get saved into this promise that all will be well. God's plan is that if we're trusting Jesus for it, then actually the punishment that we all deserve because of our sin, you remember that, the, 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 the description of it there in, in chapter 9, uh, the, the evil and the madness that is in all of our hearts, evil, madness, well, the, the condemnation that we deserve for that, that gets dealt out onto Jesus in our, our place, on our behalf. God's going to judge the world, absolutely. In fact, that's good news if we're in Christ. We want him to judge the world because that's how he'll deal with all of the brokenness. But if we're trusting him for it, then Jesus is going to take God's condemning judgment in our place. Jesus takes it. And we get clothed in his righteousness so that for us then truly it will be well. Not because we are good in righteousness, but because we have Jesus' righteousness. And so for us then we will have... The resurrection of life. A resurrection to life, as Jesus said. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. And, 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 and in a nutshell, what is that eternal life? That's life forever with Jesus and his people, with no vanity. No brokenness at all. Just peace. Peace, meaning everything where it should be. Everything where it's supposed to be. Where, it, where it's designed to be. Um, everything just as it's meant to be, no injustice, no threat of unexpected death, no death itself, death gone, period. All of God's good gifts to be experienced with unhindered joy, unhindered enjoyment of all of God's good gifts. Amazing. Huge good news. Um, but that's the, that's the perfect world. That's... Uh, The world only yet to come. Here and now, boots on the ground, day to day. We don't get to experience that uh, just yet. So in the meantime, what do we do? Well, the, the writer actually gives us some marching orders here. And he says, basically, enjoy life. It's what he says. Enjoy this life that's full of God's gifts. These are his marching orders in light of what I've said thus far. Wake up every morning and step out back into the broken world. Yep, the world is cracked. And we get up and we jump into the broken world. But we do that now in Christ, fearing God, trusting Jesus. And, and, and so as we go back into that broken world, we do so now empowered by God to actually enjoy what he intends for us to enjoy in the ways that he intends for us to enjoy them. This is part of what I think Jesus is getting at when he says that he came to give you life and that abundant life. Not just life, but abundant life. 
I think this is part of that. And we'll honor God in that way. We'll, 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 we'll praise God in that way. We'll honor God in that. We'll thank God in that way. We'll walk in fear before him by living like that, by enjoying the things that he gives us to enjoy in the way he gives us to enjoy them. So our food, our drink, our work, our marriages, man, grab hold of these things and simply enjoy them. They're good gifts. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. And man, this is a a major theme in the book. I mean, this isn't just coming out of left field. Uh, We've seen this very similar counsel from the writer in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 5, now again in chapter 8, chapter 9. Clearly, he wants to communicate something. This is important. But interesting, there is a twist here in chapter 9 with this. Um... It's very similar counsel to the, to the other parts. But here in chapter 9, I'm thinking verses 7 to 10 now uh, in particular, and we'll walk through that um, or we'll move through those verses so you could have that in front of you. Um, here he's expressing himself a little bit differently. Actually, now at this point, the counsel, it sort of takes on this different tone. So in the previous chapters, we could say that the, the writer has, has taught on this enjoyment. He has, he's advised this enjoyment. He's, he's uh, commended it. He's suggested it. Um, he's encouraged this kind of enjoyment. But here now, he's actually speaking in imperatives. He's, he's, he's saying, do this. It's essentially a command. He's not teaching. He's, he's not encouraging us. He's urging us. He's essentially commanding us, do this. Your, 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 your food, your drink, your marriage, your work, enjoy it. That's what he's saying. He's essentially commanding his readers to do this. So 9 verse 7, chapter 9 verse 7 again, he says go. In other words, wake up, get up, do it. Go, eat your bread with joy. Really, enjoy it. So, so, you know, don't think of food um, just simply as fuel for the body. We can have a tendency to do that. Um, But enjoy it. Don't think of it in this sort of utilitarian terms, kind of like, uh, again, fueled, uh, food is fuel for the body, or, or food is sort of a means to the end so that it can energize me to do uh, uh, certain things. Don't think of it merely in those terms, but enjoy it. That's what God intended with our food. Mix it up, try new things, uh, take, take time when you eat and savor it. It's an incredible gift. It's an incredible gift. One commentator says, don't rush through your meals. Don't gulp down your food like a pig. God made us so that we not only need food in order to to live, but so that we can enjoy it. And what a kind, gracious, amazing God who would give us, like, our food doesn't taste like gasoline. That's really cool. I'm very happy about that. Um, Our food that we need tastes amazing. And, and, and it brings us so much pleasure in so many ways. Um, and, and drink your wine with a merry heart, he says. Again, do that. That God gave wine to gladden the human heart. Enjoy your wine or, or you know, whichever your drink of choice. Whatever, whatever is that for you. It's a gift. Don't abuse it, but do use it. Use it. Enjoy it. Delight in it. And you're going to honor and you're going to thank God by enjoying his good gifts. Eat and drink because, the writer goes on, 
God has already approved what you do. Um, in other words, I think uh, what he's getting at there is, to, is he's probably thinking back to God's original designs. This is what God approves. This is what he's d- intended. This is what God has intended, that you would enjoy his provisions of food and drink. And then uh, in verse 8, he says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. So, um, uh, white garments, oil. In the writer's day, uh, white garments, oil, this had to do with, uh, they were symbols of, of, of health, symbols of joy, symbols of, of happiness. Um, and, uh, and, and so the writer's saying, pursue these things. Pursue these things. Take care of yourself. Be healthy. Be happy. You know, take a shower uh, and, 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 and put on some nice clothes. You know, feel, feel good about the way uh, that you look. As you're happy inside, man, let it show in the clothes that you wear with the smile on your face. Um, man, let your garments always be white. That's a good blessing. May your garments always be white and may your oil on your head not be lacking. And then verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Life is short, right? So, so don't take your spouse for granted. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your husband. Take full advantage of the intimacy that is unique to your marriage union. Um, as the Apostle Paul said, he says, do not deprive one another. He says, your body belongs to your spouse, and your spouse's body belongs to you. Enjoy it. Enjoy your spouse. One commentator um, says this, really related to all these things. He says, there has always been an ascetic tendency, this tendency to sort of uh, remove from the world, Uh, this this ascetic tendency within the Christian tradition that that understands true spirituality to to involve the shunning of created things. There just always seems to be this tendency. Shun. I want to be spiritual, so I'm going to shun the things that are created. Things like food, things like drink, things like sex. Rather than enjoying those things, the enjoyment of those things in thankfulness, in gratitude, to God. And the commentator says that the writer here helps us to see that it's the enjoyment of these things that's actually the true spirituality. I do think that's where uh, the writer is going with this. And in the meantime, um, uh, again, we, we uh, oh, I, I, I skipped verse 10, sorry. Uh, verse 10, um, he goes on, then whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. In other words, look for opportunity, man, grab hold of it, and work hard. Look for opportunity, grab hold of that, and work your tail off. Um, death lingers. It's out there. Death awaits. This is Sheol in this context. Just, just talking about the realm of the dead. Um, and death waits. Sheol is a, is a specter waiting for us. And for those in Jesus, well, then we have eternal life. But in the meantime, um, another uh, commentator, Tremper Longman, says, for example, if you have a chance to do something, do it now, because you don't know what the future will bring. Uh, fairly straightforward sort of uh, urging there by, by, by the writer. Man, if you've got a chance to do something, do it. That You have no idea when that tragic accident is, is coming. 
with you or, or with that person that you want to speak with, whoever it might be. Um, Sidney Gradenus points out that, that hard work, um, hard work, this, it might seem ironic, but as it turns out, hard work is actually part of the joy of living. Because this is what we were designed to do. God designed us to work. We were created for work. And so purposeful work should be a source of satisfaction and joy. So grab hold of that. Uh, Basically, boy, verses 7 to 10, this is essentially a command to seize the day. This is, you know, cliche as that is, cliche as that sounds. Seize the day. We're, we're, We're in Christ. We are waiting for that fixed day that God only knows when he will judge the world by Christ. And, and, we're, and we're waiting for that day. We're hoping in, in the eternal life that is, that is for us because of Jesus. And until then, what do we do? We seize the day. We take full advantage of the day that is in front of us. Um, uh, you, you know, in the, in the wake of the first human's sin, uh, everything got all out of whack. Everything got broken. Uh, and, and God intended joy in our eating and in our drinking and in marriage and in work. But then, because of sin, suddenly there's strife in marriage. There's strife in uh, relationships. Um, uh, Food and drink, now that's only going to come through the sweat of our brow, right? It's only going to come through hard toil that doesn't feel very good. Um, uh, Difficult work, just to eke out sort of a, a, a little living. And then death became certain. That, that's the result of um, what happened with the first humans and their fall into sin, but it wasn't God's design. It's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. But now Jesus, because of Jesus, we have the promise of no more of that. We have this, this, this incredible future that's ahead of us where God is going to mete out justice, and, and, and for those who fear God, it will be well. No more vanity, no more brokenness. Um, but again... Uh, this is the real world. Um, that's not where we're at quite yet, but it is the world that's coming. And even though we don't know exactly when that's going to come, so in the meantime, we, we seize the day. We just, we just jump into life and we begin to recover and pursue God's designs. By empowered by the Holy Spirit, we begin to recover and pursue God's good designs. So enjoy God's good gifts. Enjoy the designs that God has for his gifts. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your drink. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your work. Enjoy these things as much as we possibly can. It's not going to be perfect. And, and given our life contexts, it's going to look different for all of us. But as we have opportunity, we, 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 we try to enjoy these things. Um, one of the ways we can do that, and we can take sort of a step in that direction, is just to simply recognize them for what they are. They're not things to be shunned. They're things to be enjoyed as gifts. We certainly don't deserve them. And, and the fact that we have opportunity to embrace them should spur us on to actually enjoy that, that em- embrace. So don't worry about uh, these good gifts of God. Don't abuse them. But don't take them for granted either. Savor them. Praise God. Thank God. Fear God by doing so. Jesus himself, actually, it's interesting to note, I mean, Jesus himself, he, he, he came, the Bible says, eating and drinking. I think it might have been Tim Chester in, in one of his books says, you basically see Jesus like eating through the book of Luke, you know, eating and drinking through the book of Luke. 
Um, he came eating and drinking, the Bible says. And uh, as he had opportunity, in the course of his mission, Jesus didn't come to eat and drink, but in the course of his mission, he ate and he drank. Uh, he, he ate and he drank actually enough to be accused of being a drunkard, to, to being accused of being a glutton. He provided uh, people with food to enjoy. Uh, he turned water into wine at a wedding party. Uh, he was willing, I would say he was happy, to jump right in to the good provisions that God provides as he was on mission to seek and save the lost. And as Jesus was sent, so are we. We're on mission. Be on mission. Of course. This is our identity. Of course we go on mission. It's who we are as disciples of Jesus. We're sent like Jesus was sent. And man, enjoy life along the way. Enjoy God's good gifts on the way. So bottom line, be real. Uh, look around. I mean, I mean, pull our heads out of the sand, we could say. Look around. Just recognize the brokenness that is in the world all around us. This is real life. We live in a cracked hurting world. Um, but take hope. Take hope that in Jesus, we have a way out of that. Um, lots of people will try lots of different things. I've tried lots of different things to sort of get out of the brokenness and find some mending. But we have a way out, and only one way out, in Jesus. God is going to one day judge the world. He's going to set everything right, and it will be well with those who are trusting Jesus. That's our way out. No more vanity, no more brokenness of any kind. And until then, jump back into this broken world, pursue God's good designs, go, go. Represent Jesus to this broken world. Choose to truly enjoy what he provides along the way. That's, and, and again, that is one way that we'll praise him. That's one way that we will thank him. That's one way we'll honor him. That's one way that we walk in fear before the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, I guess I would just take opportunity to say thank you for your good gifts. Thank you for your provision of food. Thank you for your provision of drink. Thank you for your provision of work. Thank you for your provision of marriage. These are good gifts. And in light of your word this morning, I simply ask that you would help us to enjoy these good gifts um, in the ways that you want us to enjoy them. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.